0: Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy.
1: Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Hello! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome
2: Major Garrett. From the nation's capital.
1: Major.
3: Fantastic.
2: It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major, major Garrett.
1: Yes, CBS? Yes, I
2: am. Major Garrett.
1: Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes.
3: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. One of the great things about working for CBS is you get to meet, become colleagues with, brilliant people who know a tremendous about, about one particular subject. And our guest this week is one of those people. His name is Bill Harwood. He's worked for CBS for many, many years. I'll ask him in a second for just how long. He is our resident expert about everything that deals with space and space exploration. Any question anyone at CBS has about space, space travel, its history, its future, we go to Bill Harwood. And we go on bended knee because he knows so much. I guarantee you, he has forgotten more about space exploration and the history of it, not just in America, but globally, than I'll ever learn. Bill, it's great to see you. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us.
1: It's great to be here. I'll try to live up to that introduction.
3: (laughs) How long have you been doing this, Bill?
1: You know, I started with United Press International back in uh, April of 1984. And before that, I started with my my college newspaper at the University of Tennessee. My first shuttle launch was the very second one, STS-2. uh, And I've covered uh, 130 shuttle missions and virtually everything that's been launched uh, since uh, the
3: early 80s. What excites you about this topic?
1: I think it's a couple of things. I mean, there's two aspects of it. When you think about launching people into space and exploring our solar system, that's intrinsically exciting to me. I'm a firm believer that we need to move out of the solar system and learn as much as we can about it. I don't know that we can ever live off this planet uh, long term with large numbers. That's a total unknown at this point. But you have to start somewhere. And I think we have the technology to explore the solar system. And it's something we should do. And, and so I'm, I'm very excited about that. And then the other side of the coin is the unpiloted or unmanned, as we used to say in the old days, uh, spacecraft that are exploring our solar system in detail, going to planets that it will be decades or maybe even centuries before humans ever visit, uh, bringing us back these, these spectacular views of Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and every, every planet in the solar system uh, has now been visited by, by robot probes. And that's enormously exciting to me. And then the third side of this is spacecraft like the Hubble Space Telescope that let us peer out through interstellar space into the cosmos at large. And, uh, you know, I think if you look back at everything that's happened in our space program, if you look at the Hubble Space Telescope, that may be the most scientifically valuable uh, spacecraft ever launched, uh, people or no people. Uh, So all of those things together are what make it exciting to me. And when you you, you add the aspect of putting people on top of rockets, uh, there's a there's just an inherent excitement to that. So it's a lot of fun.
3: Were you captivated by the space program as a child?
1: I was. I remember growing up and watching all the, uh, the Mercury and Gemini flights when they happened in the 60s. I was in grammar school for those flights. I was in high school when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. I can remember uh, getting together with my best friend in Nashville, Tennessee, and going over to his house that night to watch them come down that ladder and, and walk on the moon. I never expected to be a space reporter. My interest was in science and more generally as a journalist, but, you know, I lucked into this job in Cape Canaveral with the United Press International, and I've been here ever since and don't regret a minute of it.
3: So it's often said by astronauts when they come back from a mission that there is something that they've experienced or learned that's given them an even broader sense of not only themselves, but the Earth, but a kind of a philosophical insight. Yeah. Has that happened to you, even though you've not been in space?
1: Um... It has. I, I don't know that it's related to astronauts so much. I mean, I can look at a couple of pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, and I get that very feeling. Uh, you know, I like like you. I've talked to other astronauts who've said much the same. I think when I, when you look at as many images from space as I have over the years, and lots of space enthusiasts do, um, you look at the planet, and like the astronauts say, you know, there are no boundaries that you can see in space. And and the really striking thing is when you look at Earth from these cameras from space, this very, very thin band of atmosphere that you can see makes you realize at a glance how, how fragile this place is. I mean, the, the planet is sitting in this black void and nothing between us and, and, you know, the cosmos except this very thin layer of atmosphere. And so that brings home the whole idea of pollution, all the things that the impact that humans have had on the planet. Uh, so I certainly am stirred by that as I think most people are who see those pictures. And I can only imagine that seeing that from space would add a whole other dimension to it.
3: So one of the most exciting and pathbreaking things that's going on right now is an actual conversation going on at the highest levels of the U.S. government and in private industry about really going to Mars. It's a huge topic we're going to talk a lot about it. We've got about four minutes in this segment. We'll carry it over into the second segment. But I just want to give my audience a couple of basics. And correct me if my math is wrong here. Uh, from the Earth, it's 140 million miles, give or take, to Mars, which is a six-month journey by rocket. By contrast, the moon is 240,000 miles away, three days to the moon. Is that about right?
1: Roughly right. The the Mars figures you're given are averages because obviously there are points when we're on one side of the sun and the moon and Mars is on the other. Um, So it varies. But yes, it is. It's roughly six months using current technology to get there. That's not to say that improved uh, propulsion technology could shorten that. But right now, it's about six months one way. And you're right about the moon. It's about four days, if you want to think about it like that.
3: Got it. And when we had Jim Bridenstine, the NASA administrator for the Trump administration on this program many years ago, he talked not only about trying to get to Mars from Earth, but also having a base or something on either the surface of the moon or near it as a springboard. Uh, which of those two are most practicable?
1: It really, it, it's not a simple question to answer because it depends on what technology you decide to use to do it. Um, you know, the, the one big advantage of going to the moon before you go to Mars is, as you said, it's only four days away. So it's a great place to test the technology you need to go to Mars. If something bad happens, you're just four days away from Earth. Uh, those are huge factors in in developing a strategy to go to Mars. Um, now, do you need to leave from the moon to go to Mars? That depends on the rocket systems that you're using to get there. You know, Elon Musk and SpaceX are, are designing a huge rocket called the Starship. that could in theory uh, go straight to Mars with people on it from earth and no problem. Without having, there, there wouldn't be a, a, a huge advantage to going to the moon. Uh, but on the other hand, one of the reasons NASA wants to go back to the moon, besides the fact that it's relatively close, they think there's ice in these permanently shadowed craters near the poles. And if you have ice and you have some solar power nearby, you can take it apart. You get hydrogen, you get oxygen. So you've got rocket fuel, you've got water and air. So in a sense, it would let you live off the land a little bit if you could perfect that technology. And that's, that's not a small thing, that's a big if. But if you can do that, you could presumably stage your Mars flight from the moon, get propulsion, Uh, you know, living materials that you need to take with you that would be easier to launch from the moon than they are from earth, which is higher gravity. Uh, So it may be that the moon's a good staging point. These things are, it's way too soon to know any of this. People talk blithely about we're going to get, you know, all this stuff from the moon, developing the, the infrastructure on the moon to do that is huge. It's a huge challenge. So it's just too soon to say, the long answer to your question, it's just too soon to
3: say. So we got about a minute before we go to our first break, Bill Harwood. Uh, why Mars? Uh, what's the point of getting to Mars? Is it just because it's the next place or is there something that we should really think about actively doing if, we once get, if once we get there, if we get there?
1: I think if there's one single thing about Mars is it is the most Earth-like planet in the solar system by far. You know, Mercury is airless. It's close to the sun. It's extraordinary. The temperature extremes are extraordinary. Venus, you know, sitting on the surface of Venus, you're in a pizza oven. That's what it boils down to, literally. Uh, Not a a good place to go live or explore. Um, You know, all the outer planets are gas giants. I mean, there are moons presumably you can go to, but they are so far away. That's in the realm of science fiction right now. So Mars is the only reachable planet that's remotely Earth-like, that you could envision putting a, a research station or someday a colony.
3: Interesting. And before we go to break, and I'll set this up for our next segment, it's not just about using either the moon or Mars as a place to do experiments. There's actually a large body of thought about making them habitable for some number of people. Elon Musk does talk about Colonization of Mars. We'll pick up that topic with our space expert, Bill Harwood. I'm Major Garrett. Segment 2 of the Takeout in just a second.
2: We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why ZBiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
3: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. One of the smartest people I know, Bill Harwood, space expert for CBS News, is our special guest. So colonization of Mars or the moon, how realistic should we think that could be, Bill? Not very. Okay. Um,
1: It is realistic. It it depends on the timescale, Major. If you're talking in the next 20 years, no or even 50 years. If you're talking centuries, then then yes, uh, certainly. It it comes down to technology, uh, how much it's going to cost and and who's going to pay for it and all of that. But in the near term, in in our lifetimes, I'll put it like that, colonization is not even on the table. I mean, the most we're possibly talking about are research missions uh, by small groups of astronauts. Now, uh, I say astronauts. I mean, Elon Musk, as you mentioned, is talking about sending people to Mars And he very well may do that, uh, but we're still not talking colony colony sizes. We're talking a small outpost initially. I mean, you know, if you think about the surface of Mars, you're wearing a space suit. Even though there's an atmosphere there, it is so thin. One percent is dense as Earth. Uh, It's not a hospitable place. And building the infrastructure to support large numbers of people, launching that to Mars, successfully landing it, assembling it, We all talk about this as like it's something we're going to do next year, but no, this is long-term stuff.
3: Let me broaden the aperture a little bit, and then we'll get to Artemis and the moon. Uh, But just broadening the aperture, I've read some stories, Bill, about this conversation that, you know, we used to have an understanding about space, space exploration, and the national responsibilities within an international framework about what to do and what not to do. But if the moon becomes a place that, People can stay for some period of time and there is water there and there may be other things of value there. Well, who gets them and who gets to claim them and what are the financial repercussions of that? What are the equities internationally or nationally for that? Could that become a point of friction or maybe conflict? When you think about those kinds of things, should we try to wrap our arms around them as well? Absolutely. I think these are questions that will
1: have to be answered when by the time we get there with multiple nationalities, multiple groups. I don't view it as a near-term question, again, because in the next, say, two decades on the moon, you can see China putting people on the moon, certainly the United States and its partners, which would include the European Space Agency and Japan. Uh, Russia has said they want to go to the moon. Uh, it's a small enough number that you, know, you, can, you can keep things relatively uh, you know, in family, if you will, but uh, certainly it's something that needs to be codified. There is, there is treaty, there is law, dating back to the 60s, the Outer Space Treaty and some others that state that you can't go to the moon and mark off an acre and say, that's mine. Uh, people, if everybody signed on to that, you can't do it. But when it, when it gets down to, uh, I want this section to extract water or minerals or something like that, then I think some more specified specific law is going to have to be there that people sign on to. That hadn't happened yet, but I think people are thinking about it. Uh, And it's something that's going to, you know, it's going to rear its head at some point that
3: has to be resolved. So there was a period of time in our country where the U.S. space program was sort of in a trough. And it seems to me, Bill, as a complete outsider, a complete novice, that three people, I'm going to name check them, and I'm going to let you walk our audience through what they brought to this equation. Sort of, if not galvanized, but incentivized or used the private sector and its curiosity and its wealth to sort of maybe motivate or push things in a more aggressive direction. Their names are Richard Branson in no particular order, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk. They all have three different, completely or not completely, but slightly different orientations to what they want to do and how they want to inhabit either the atmospheric realms of the, of the Earth or deep space. Walk my audience through, and we'll just start with Elon Musk because SpaceX is by far. Uh, the leader in this particular realm.
1: Yeah, that's true, Major. It's, it's almost a little bit of apples and oranges. Elon is the only one of the three currently uh, that builds an orbit-class uh, rocket ship. Uh, he has the Falcon 9. It's interesting, he's launched 115 Falcon 9 rockets since 2010, when the program debuted. Um, he's launched three crews to the International Space Station aboard their Crew Dragon capsule. That's a huge thing for NASA. That ends the agency's sole reliance on Russia for launching astronauts to and from the shuttle, uh, the space station, which has been in place since the shuttle was retired back in 2011. So that's a big deal. And of course, he's building a big new rocket called the Starship uh, that, that he envisions as the future of, of rocket-powered space travel to carry astronauts and civilians to the moon and eventually on to Mars. Now, Bezos and Branson right now are building suborbital rockets. These are uh machines that will carry civilians normal normal people if you can afford the ticket and we can talk about that uh, but it'll carry civilians up into space above 60 miles which is the recognized boundary if you will where the discernible atmosphere ends and space begins somewhat arbitrary but still uh both of those guys are building uh their companies are building spacecraft that will do that you go straight up you get three or four minutes of weightlessness and then you come down um so that's suborbital. That's all Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic is focused on. It's space tourism, suborbital spaceflight. Bezos is doing the same thing, but he's also building a new rocket called the New Glenn. He names his rockets after the Mercury astronauts uh, that will eventually carry payloads and people, he says, eventually uh, to orbit. That rocket hasn't flown yet. So Blue Origin, that's Jeff Bezos' company, will eventually compete with Elon Musk and SpaceX to launch satellites and eventually people into space, but they're not there yet. The operational, purely commercial uh, orbit class missions are launched by SpaceX and a company called United Launch Alliance, which people may be familiar with uh, the Atlas and Delta families of rockets that have been around since the early days of the space program. So two big companies launching in the US, United Launch Alliance and SpaceX, to more companies that are going to be launching people into space and then back down again.
3: So, on the space tourism thing, uh, if I want to have a few, mem- few moments of weightlessness, look out and peer that window and see the, the world, how much does that cost me?
1: Well, we don't know that yet. They haven't advertised prices yet. It's gonna. It's expected to be somewhere in the half million dollars of flight regime. Uh, Virgin Galactic, that's Richard Branson's company, originally said tickets would cost around 200,000. It went up to like 250,000. And now, We're going to have to wait and see. Now, one thing interesting, Major, it's not just tourists that they're going to launch. Uh, uh, Foreign governments can use these spacecraft uh, to launch their own astronauts, if you will, to operate microgravity experiments. Uh, NASA is already launching experiments on these these flights, uh, microgravity experiments. And NASA has signed an agreement that will let them put some of their astronauts on these vehicles for training. Virgin has said that for those sorts of flights, it's about a half million dollars a ticket. The implication is it'd be a little less for a pure civilian that's less training is involved. Uh, But it's not for the faint of heart or, or at least someone without a big checkbook.
3: No doubt. And when this all began, this conversation began, and if I'm understanding it correctly, Bill, it all began around 2002, 2003, 2004. When you were looking at that, based on your experience Did you think the private sector could accomplish as much as it has, or do you think they're not accomplishing as much as you thought might be possible?
1: That's a really, that's a good question. Um, I didn't think, I I thought that the aircraft that Virgin Galactic is using, that is a winged space plane that was designed by a legendary aircraft designer in this country named Burt Rutan. And I was there when that first flew, it was called the Ansari X Prize, where they went up into space, the first purely commercial flight to do that. Um, I thought that that could certainly be turned into some sort of a commercial venture. I didn't think it would take this long. Uh, and, I, and I also think the cost of this is so prohibitive. Uh, I don't know what the long-term outlook is for these sorts of commercial flights. Um, you know, their goal is to get to the point where they launch so many times, the cost will come down. I've, I've seen people talk about, you know, at some point this could get down to the cost of an ocean cruise, for example. Uh, I think that's many, many years away. And the wild card in all this, Major, is what happens if one of these fails? Right, of course. And, and you have an accident that claims some lives. What will that do to the business? And, I, you know, if, if you look back at the early days of the airplane industry, the airliner industry, there were crashes frequently. That didn't stop it. Uh, today with social media and the wide publicity these things get. I mean, your guess is as good as mine.
3: So when we come back with our special guest, Bill Harwood, we're going to talk about Artemis, which is the program that's going to take Americans back to the moon, woman and a man, maybe a four-person crew, if I understand the way it's currently constructed within Artemis. And that's happening sooner rather than later. I believe things have been slowed down a little bit by the pandemic. I mean, what hasn't? But Artemis, the moon, more on space travel with a great guest Brilliant guy, Bill Harwood. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout in just a second.
2: From CBS News,
1: this is The Takeout
3: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. CBS space expert Bill Harwood is our special guest. So, Bill, talk to my audience about Artemis.
1: Well, this is NASA's new moon program. This is, uh, Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. Nice name for the program. Uh, the goal is to get back to the moon in a sustainable way. In other words, you're not just going to pick up a few rocks and come home. The idea is to support long-term exploration to exploit the resources of the moon and to possibly using it, use it as a staging base for eventual flights to Mars. That's the goal. Uh, the question is, how long is it going to take to get there? And how much money is Congress going to pay to fund it? And those two are intimately related. Uh, if you don't get the money, you don't get there soon.
3: And what is, so uh, let me start at the beginning. Artemis goes there. I've heard something called the gateway. What is the gateway as part of right. Artemis? Okay,
1: so the plan for Artemis is you need a new rocket. So NASA's building this thing called the Space Launch System, SLS. It's a Huge rocket. It's more powerful than the legendary Saturn V that sent the Apollo astronauts to the moon. That's the rocket. They've got a capsule that's coming along called Orion that'll carry crews of four, as you say, uh, on deep space missions to the moon. And then you need a way to get to the moon. So you need a lander that could carry astronauts down to the surface. That's called the Human Landing System or HLS. And Gateway is, a, is an interesting idea. It's a small space station that would be in orbit around the moon. And so the idea would be that the SLS rocket would launch an Orion capsule to the moon. The Orion would dock at the gateway. The astronauts could kind of move inside very briefly. They would then transfer to the lunar lander, go down to the surface, do their mission, come back up to gateway, get back in their Orion and come home. That's that's what the gateway is. Now, SpaceX is building, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, their version of the lunar lander doesn't need gateway. It can go there, but it can also simply go direct to the lunar surface. So Some of these questions, it remains to be seen how it's going to play out. But the idea is to get astronauts back down on the moon near the South Pole as soon as possible.
3: And why the South Pole?
1: The orbital spacecraft around the moon show that down at the South Pole, if you picture crater rims and and sticking up into the sunlight at the pole, down inside those craters, sunlight never reaches. It's permanently shadowed. And so the temperatures are extraordinarily cold, hundreds of degrees below zero. And they know uh, from, from sensor readings in orbit, they can see the, the presence of hydrogen molecule atoms uh, and others. And they believe ice must be present. Now, whether it's mixed in with the soil and how you would get it out it's a big unknown right now. But they think ice is in those permanently shadowed craters. That's a commodity that can be used to make air, water, and rocket fuel. So if you could get that on the moon, you don't have to carry it up from Earth. It's a, It's a big deal. And so they've made the South Pole the a target for for Artemis uh, to see what's there and what might be needed to get it out.
3: So I'm just trying to imagine this, uh, and I'm thinking somewhat cinematically, Bill. (laughs) So there's this crater on on the south pole of the moon. Do you land in the crater or do you land near the crater and then go into it? I mean, how do you find out what's actually there?
1: Well, first of all, you launch a bunch of precursor missions, un, un- you know, non-piloted robots that would both orbit the moon and rove around on the surface to answer just those basic questions: what form is the ice in? Is it mixed in with soil? What would you have to do to extract it? Um, but I think the long-term idea would be you would land humans near um, those permanently shadowed craters, and and at some point you would have solar array installations on the surface that are in sunlight that provide the power you would need to kind of do reverse electrolysis, right? You take the ice apart into the into, into, uh, at hydrogen atoms and, and oxygen. Uh, but that is, that's really long-term stuff. As you say, the first thing, they got to figure out exactly what's there. Uh, and that's the goal of these early missions, both robotic and the initial human flights.
3: And when will we start to see some of those missions actually getting up to the moon? And when can we actually think about, in a practical way, Americans back on the surface.
1: Okay, well, the first SLS test flight with an unpiloted Orion is scheduled for late this year. The rocket is here at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, they're getting ready to. They'll be taking out to launch pad later this year and, and launching it on a flight to send that Orion around the moon and back to Earth as an unpiloted test. In 2023, they hope to launch a four-person crew aboard an Orion capsule. It also would go out beyond the moon, uh, probably orbit it, and then come home. And then the third flight of the SLS would be the human landing mission. Now, the Trump administration set 2024 as the target date for that mission. That requires a lot of money uh, to NASA to develop the systems needed to get there. The big wild card right now being that human landing system, the lander you need to get to the surface. NASA claims it is still possible to do this in 2024. uh, But I think that's a really big if and I'd be surprised that they could pull it off. But certainly 2025, 2026 is reasonable for that first flight. And then, you know, how often you fly after that, how you sustain the presence on the moon, it all comes down to funding. It's not a technology issue. It's a how much how much money does NASA have to buy the hardware to make it happen? And that's a question of national will.
3: Right. And some of my audience might be thinking, wait a minute, if I heard you correctly, Bill, you said Elon Musk is trying to get to the moon and NASA is trying to get to the moon. Is that not duplicative? And are we wasting resources that might better be used in a combined way to have just one mission to the moon? Well,
1: it is a combined way in a sense. NASA just recently uh, announced a contract for the human lander that went to SpaceX. So the upper stage of uh, SpaceX's big Starship rocket, a, a, a variant of that rocket, is what SpaceX is planning to send down to the surface of the moon for the Artemis program. They got a I think it was a $2.9 billion contract uh, to begin work on that lander. Now, at the same time as you, and that's part of the government program, but at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, SpaceX has also talked about launching people there on its own as purely commercial missions. I think, I think NASA is totally good with that. If SpaceX wants to spend their own money to go to the moon, they're they're more than happy to see that. Um, They want to encourage much more commercial development of space in general. Uh, I think that that's clearly the goal now, uh, Whether rather all of these flights can be supported or not. Again, it's, it's anybody's guess. I, you know, I, I, I get the sense talking to people. They think that going back to the moon is something easy because we did it 50 years ago. It's not easy. Uh, this is a challenging thing to go do. And it's very expensive and it's, and it's got some risk involved. So we'll see how fast people can do this. Elon has said uh, I keep saying Elon, SpaceX. Uh, right. his, that's what everybody says. Right. Elon. Uh, SpaceX has said they can have people up on the moon by 2024. And, you know, given their track record, I mean, I don't know that I'd want to bet against them.
3: Right. And if I recall correctly, Bill, what you just described, go up to the moon and then go up a second time, orbit it, come back. That's sort of what we did with Apollo, right? Didn't we sort of do these things incrementally? Test one aspect of the technology, right. then test it again before we had humans, and then we tested with humans, and then we uh, we're doing right. those things again, aren't we not? We
1: are, but but very much abbreviated. One of the complaints from the old school space community is you're not doing enough test flights. Um, if you think about the way it's laid out right now, the art of the third mission in this program will carry astronauts down to the surface of the moon. I mean. You know, when Apollo did this, they tested the lunar lander in Earth orbit. They went to the moon and tested it uh, before they ever tried to send people down to the surface. Uh, So I think there's some concern in uh, I won't call it old school quarters, but maybe traditional aerospace quarters. Uh, There's some concern that you really need to make sure that you've got this thing thoroughly tested before you commit to putting people on it and sending it down to the surface of the moon. It's a good question. You know, it's uh, not sure how it's going to play out. It's the same approach NASA took originally, but with less testing.
3: Right. Now, this episode requires no teasers because every answer you give fills us with information. There's a lot of drama associated with it. There's a lot of aspirations associated with it. But in the not-too-recent past, we dealt with this Chinese rocket that was in the sky, and we're like, where is it going to land? Where is it going to land? So one of the things I want to talk about in our next segment is – What was that really all about? How dangerous was or wasn't it? And what about this issue of either space junk or things in space that we currently use but are not going to be there forever? What happens when they come down to Earth? And what are all the implications of that? Bill Harwood is our special guest. He will help us with that topic and many others related to space. I'm Major Garrett. Segment four of The Takeout coming up in just a second.
2: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
3: His brilliance is incandescent. His name is Bill Harwood. Bill, talk to us about the Chinese rocket. Was it a big deal? Should it be thought of as a big deal? Or did it uh, suffer from a little bit of media overhype?
1: How about all three? Uh, (laughs) It was a little bit of uh, all of those things. Um, uh, For one thing, I I lost no sleep over this at all. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the Earth is 75% water the land area, while it's vast to you and me, is mostly empty. And the odds that a few chunks of debris, think about a pickup truck or two falling out of the sky, hitting some place on the world, and that some place is a big city or something, I mean, the odds of that are extraordinarily remote. Um, So I was certainly not worried about getting bopped on the head. Uh, That said, China is one of the few countries that launches big rockets and don't include technology to drive them out of orbit safely, uh, for example, over the Pacific Ocean, away from congested sea lanes and all of that. Uh, You know, SpaceX, when they launch a Falcon 9, the second stage of that rocket, they drive it down into the atmosphere where it harmlessly burns up. Any debris that does survive entry would simply fall into the ocean. Uh, Russia does that, the European Space Agency, but the Chinese don't. I think they, uh, for rockets like this one anyway, uh, they're just relying on the odds that statistically, the odds of it hitting someplace populated are, are so remote, they don't seem to want to worry about it.
3: Do they lack the technology or just the will?
1: Oh no, it's not a matter of technology. They could easily do that. This country's put landers on the moon. They've got one about to go down to the surface of Mars. They clearly had the technology to do it. They simply they they just simply don't I don't think they think it's necessary.
3: And is there an issue about things in space uh, that become either fields of debris or come back to the earth that should ever concern us?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Space debris is a growing problem uh, that I think is one of the biggest issues facing the space community right now. Um, You have to remember that everything in low Earth orbit, whether it's a BB or the International Space Station, is moving at roughly the same speed. It doesn't depend on your mass. It just depends on your altitude. And if you're in low Earth orbit, you're moving at about 4.7 miles per second. That means if you think about that and do a little bit of little bit of arithmetic, that's more than 80 football fields per second that any piece of space debris is moving. So if you imagine getting hit, if your satellite gets hit by a piece of debris going that fast, or your piloted human capsule gets hit, or the space station, you know, you can have a catastrophic result. Beyond that, if old dead satellites get hit by something, it causes more debris. It's kind of a cascading effect in low Earth orbit. The space station occasionally has to maneuver to get out of the way of something that's being tracked. But they only track objects about the size of a baseball and up. There are millions of fragments smaller than that whizzing around. You know, they've done surveys of the space station. You can see little impact craters around the station where things have hit. Haven't caused a problem yet, but they could. And so space debris is a, is a really big issue. Um, that they really are working on now and trying to get more serious about uh, minimizing this in the future.
3: How do you minimize it? I mean, it's not as if you can bring a vacuum cleaner up there.
1: No, the, the problem is that the stuff that's already there. A lot of this debris dates back to the early days of the program when people weren't thinking about this. Uh, it's still there. Uh, I think the thrust right now is to make sure anything you launch at this point can't contribute to debris. Uh, You make sure when a satellite's dead that you can boost it to a higher orbit where it can't, you know, it's not in the way of other spacecraft. Uh, Or you can drive it down into the atmosphere and let it burn up. SpaceX is launching literally thousands of Starlink internet satellites. They've got more than 1500 in orbit right now. Those satellites are designed to maneuver out of orbit uh, in the end of their life to burn up in the atmosphere. Um, But what you do about the stuff that was already there Big question. Uh, There are people working on some pretty innovative ideas about how you could go eliminate some of that, but remains to be seen if it's going to make a noticeable impact.
3: Look, everyone digs fire, Bill. So explain to my audience just the basic physics of this re-entry burn-up process for anything made of metal. How does it happen? What happens? What goes on?
1: Right. So let's take the Chinese rocket for an example. So We think of space where the space station, for example, is flying as a vacuum, but it's not really a vacuum. There is still a trace amount of atmosphere up there, atoms and molecules whizzing around, nothing that you or I would notice. But when you're moving at nearly five miles per second and you hit those objects, it has has an effect, believe it or not. And over time, that atmospheric drag acts to slowly pull things out of orbit. Depends on the size, it depends on the original altitude. Like with the space station, they have to fire rocket motors several times a year to keep the the station at the proper altitude. In the case of the Chinese rocket, that atmospheric drag caused it to come down, and it eventually reaches a point where the atmosphere is so thick. If you can imagine when you hold your hand out the window of your car on the interstate, you can feel that force on your hand. Imagine that force when you're moving at 17,000 miles an hour. Uh, it, It causes a tremendous deceleration, which translates into friction. And you get this intense aerodynamic uh, plasma, this this ionized gas uh, that builds up from these extraordinarily high temperatures, and a lot of materials will melt. Uh, What usually happens is the spacecraft breaks apart. A lot of the material simply vaporizes. It gets incinerated. If the rocket is big enough, some debris can survive that, and then free falls down to the surface, uh, the remains of the rocket. In the case of the Chinese rocket, almost certainly some chunks of debris reached the surface. Uh, it didn't completely burn up. It weighed 20 tons to start with. Uh, but that's how the process works.
3: And do we know what percentage of the Chinese rocket landed here on Earth? Like, five- We do
1: not. Uh, the estimates were somewhere between 20 and 40% of it. Wow. Uh, but those are just estimates based on earlier spacecraft. That there's so many factors and variables, it's really hard to make a prediction like that if you don't get it back on land where you can go measure. Right. In this case, that has not happened.
3: Right. So we got about a minute and 40 left, Bill, uh, for our radio audience. And I want to talk about the International Space Station because it is a real thing. It has been a tremendous, I think, success. Tell my audience a little bit about what has been learned and achieved through that.
1: Well, You know, I've always said you, you can't justify the station on science alone, although they do world-class science there. The biggest thing with the station is the international cooperation that got it built. Uh, we talked about the Chinese rocket weighed 20 tons. The International Space Station, if you could weigh it, is over 930,000 pounds in space. It's a a huge outpost. Uh, They have spacecraft going to and from it, learning how to control a vehicle like that to carry out research, keep the crew alive, is all material that you've got to know when you want to go to Mars or if you want to go uh, a long-term presence in space. Uh, The station is a great testing ground for that. And I think it's been hugely beneficial uh, for everybody concerned.
3: So, Does it have a long-term future or is it going to be wound down?
1: Very good question. It is certified structurally to last through the end of the decade, roughly. Uh, the U.S. wants to do that. Russia has made noise recently about pulling out uh, in the 2025-26 timeframe, operating a space station on their own. That remains to be seen. Uh, both partners are required to operate the International Space Station. You have to have both countries involved. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to play out. I'd, I don't see the station lasting beyond the end of the decade in any case. Uh, NASA has to spend about $3 billion a year supporting it, and I don't think that's going to continue indefinitely.
3: I promised you brilliance. Bill Howard delivered it with every single answer. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBSN and on our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for joining us on The Takeout, and we will see you next week.
2: CBS News. This is the Takeout
3: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout. I'll take a special. I am Major Garrett. Bill Harwood, CBS News space expert, is our guest. This is the fun and games segment of our show, Bill. So, what's the most fun you've had covering space? I imagine that's a pretty long list. No,
1: it's a very, it's a very quick answer. It was the Voyager two flyby of Neptune in nineteen eighty nine. It was my first interplanetary mission. And as Ed Stone, the project manager said that day, you can only visit a new world for the first time once. I've never forgotten that. It was the most exciting uh, space mission without people on board that I, I can remember.
3: And when, uh, People think about space as the final frontier, as was said by Gene Roddenberry and uh, Star Trek, the very first version of it. I'm old enough to remember that. I know you are, too. Is it the final frontier? Is it the most amazing place? There are those, as you know, who think, no, no, the ocean's much more interesting, kids. Uh, you know, right here on Earth. But, but what do you think?
1: Um, well, I'm a big fan of exploring the ocean, too. You know, I think we know the surface of Mars better than we know the surface of the, the undersea, the floor of the ocean. right? Now. No, seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of ocean research. You know, space is something that, while it's fascinating to me as a longtime science fiction reader, when I was growing up, I really don't know if that's something that long-term uh, people are going to be able to, to flourish in and use. I mean, robotically for sure, um, exploring and learning about the solar system, life in the universe, uh, great stuff, and that'll continue. But but the long-term outlook for people in space, I don't know. I'm, I'm a, a little bit skeptical because I think the cost and the and the, and the risk are high enough that it, it's not like jumping on a, a wagon and heading west.
3: Right. And there is uh, some body of thought, well, if things go really south here and we so foul up the planet, we can go someplace else. You're not so sure about that.
1: I'm not. I, I think the, the technology and the infrastructure required for a, for a real colony on Mars, for example, um, it's a real challenge. You know, Earth is blessed. We have the a magnetic field and uh, Van Allen radiation belts, things that shield us from solar radiation. You don't have that on Mars. You don't have that on the moon. So you're, you're, you're going to be living underground or you're going to be living with some kind of shielding that I'm not sure I can envision at this point. Um, not, it, not, not saying it can't be done. It can. But, but when you talk about another Earth, you know, large colonies on other worlds, is—that is, that is so far in the future, it's almost science fiction to talk about. Definitely possible. But it's not something you're going to see in your
3: lifetime. And to your point, we've got it pretty good here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we
1: do. And that's the one thing we haven't talked about yet is the value of space resources on monitoring the climate uh, and the Earth's, the Earth's resources and weather. So um yeah, yeah, we do have it pretty good here, certainly better than any place else in the solar system, without a doubt.
3: And NASA has contributed considerably in the last decade to our knowledge of global warming patterns, weather changes and, all, and the like.
1: Oh, absolutely. The spacecraft they have in orbit, uh, not only just uh, studying the Earth, but studying space weather, the impact of the sun on the environment. Uh, all of that's going on in the background. It doesn't get the attention uh, that human spaceflight gets or helicopters on Mars gets. Uh, But it's absolutely critical to studying what's going on with the climate and what might be needed down the road to offset some of the changes that are happening.
3: Understood. So we have three threshold questions, Bill, for all of our guests in no particular order. uh, Most influential book in your life. uh, One of your favorite movies or your all time favorite movie. And if you're going to go on a long flight or a long drive and you want to enjoy some music, what kind of music, Uh, artist or genre are you most likely to listen to?
1: I'll give you two books. Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. And Mike, yes, Collins, brilliant the, book. Yeah. and Mike Collins, the Apollo 11 astronaut, wrote his own book called Carrying the Fire about being an astronaut. I always tell people you want to learn about space. If you read those two books, you'll have a really good idea about it. Favorite movie, of course, is 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I think I saw in 1968 with my family. And I remember my dad walking out. What did that mean? And uh, I'm not sure I know to this day, but I love that movie. And and as for music, I'm a jazz fan. I'm a longtime jazz fan. I love Miles Davis, all the the classic beboppers and swingers from the 50s and 60s. And I still listen to all that.
3: Uh, What is, uh, in your opinion, the best movie about space exploration? Uh, 2001 Space Odyssey is a larger movie about 100 (laughs) different things. Like you, I still haven't figured out what even 10 of those 100 things are. But a a movie about space and itself and exploration, what do you think is the best one ever made?
1: Uh, It's a tough call. I mean, I'd still put 2001 at the top of that list because Mm -hmm. even though it was made in 1968, Major, the the way they showed space, with only a few minor exceptions, was really right on. Uh, One movie I'd recommend to people is called The Europa Project. It's a small movie. It's about a commercial flight to Jupiter's moon Europa. Uh, It's extremely well done. uh, Definitely exciting. Has an alien in it. That's even better. Uh, <laughs> but it's a it's a really interesting uh, movie that that accurately, I think, mostly accurately, portrays what space spaceflight is like on a on a long-duration
3: space mission. Is it wrong for me to be a sucker for Apollo 13?
1: Apollo 13 is a great movie. I, I probably should have mentioned that. Um, certainly one of my favorites as well. Uh, that's such a familiar story, and they did a very good job of telling it. Again, one of those movies with only one or two small things you can quibble with. Uh, very, very, very accurate
3: retelling. Great. Bill Harwood, what a great pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to the next time I'm down in NASA. I was, been, I was there once with you at the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. It was great to hang out with you. It's always great to hang out with you either in person or via Zoom. I know my audience is grateful. Thanks so much. Be well. We'll see you soon.
2: Thanks, Wayne. Appreciate it. I'm Moraka, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Moraka on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.